David Penn here. Welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast. I'm certainly glad to be here for another day. And uh, as we get started, I want to thank Free People Radio and Free People of America for hosting this podcast and working for human well-being, well-being, human freedom, and human dignity. I want to thank our sponsor, Target.com. You got to buy tires. You can buy them from Target.com. That's Target.com. Everything you need for tires, and you fund the movement. It's a win-win opportunity. And, as always, PrecinctStrategy.com for a tutorial for those of you who want to get in the game of politics, get a seat at the table, and participate in the restoration of human well-being in our beloved United States of America. So uh, this is going to these these next several podcasts are going to kind of end the first uh, series where I'm trying to lay a predicate about how we got to where we're at. And if you remember, uh, my theory of the case is is that uh, we're living in a new religion. People talk about the new world order all the time, <clears throat> and uh, when they talk about the new world order, I think people think about you know some kind of a oh corporate government, banking, merger, or a new political organization throughout the world. I think the New World Order is a new religion. And all those things that I just mentioned are downstream of this new religion. We talked about uh, humanism in Julian Huxley and how Huxley created humanism or codified humanism as a religion to supplant the Judeo-Christian root of Western culture. And we're going to continue in that theme today. We're going to say, how do they, they get this done? I mean, this is really interesting. How were they able to overturn? Because it is overturned. Come on, let's just be honest about it. How were they able to overturn a 6,000-year tradition which was dominant in human affairs, you know, for much of that time? And uh, how did they do it? Well, a lot of it was uh, done in secret because if you show up on... Main Street, and you start espousing views and, and policies that are in direct contradiction to the prevailing zeitgeist of the time, you know, you're going to get uh, very little positive response. So, you know, there was a, a great effort to, to use these secret societies. And I think it's in time for us as the American people, the free people of America, to understand secret societies because although John Kennedy reminded us that we dislike secrets as Americans because we're a republic and a democratic republic and we have a free speech and, and we want to have a transparency and rule of law, uh, we better understand what these people are doing because they used the very freedoms that underlie and undergird our republic as the cover for their secret activities which are, in fact, protected by the Constitution. So we need to understand these secret uh, societies. But uh, as always, I like to start out with a little bit of Ukraine news. And this is going to be a little bit of a twisty uh, trip back into the Ukraine. Uh, the, uh, the cold open uh, this morning was fantastic scenes of combat uh, when the Russian army was entering Berlin. And that was in 1945, for those of you who are history buffs, which all of us need. 
<clears throat> all of us need to be history buffs. I mean, if we don't know where we were, how are we going to know where we are? This is not that long ago, 1945, in the great scheme of things. And <clears throat> there are still people alive in the Soviet Union today, now called the Russian Federation, that have a cultural memory or actually might have been children when the uh, Soviet armies entered Berlin. And that was some brutal fighting. And that brutal fighting was, um, you know, it's, it's going on again today around Bakhmut. That same kind of just horrible, last man standing, you know, death and destruction, which we have not seen in Europe since 1945. Well, since no longer matters. It's going on right now today. But I really wanted to focus on the music that I, I had uh, ta uh, Tanner edit into that scene. That's, for those of you who don't know it, Shostakovich, oh, getting upset, Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 5. Very famous symphony. Now, I recognize that um, many of us are not classical music aficionados here in 2023. Uh, but interestingly, symphony music in the symphony life is actually, actually a secret society. It's a good one to think about because it's not that threatening, although it is quite an effective secret society. We just don't understand its effect. That's why it's so secret and so cool. And I think I'm uh, capable of commenting on this because this is one of the three secret societies that I participated in in my lifetime, over 20 years of my life devoted to that secret society, which is the classical music subculture, which has its own rules, its own costumes, its own institutions, its own funding, its own rules, its own history, and its own great leaders and great men, and a creation myth. This symphony, classical music society, secret society, is actually a very important cultural mechanism. And what it does, to start out with the punchline, is it transmits a certain timelessness to the listener. When we listen to that Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 5, which is a, you know, acknowledged throughout the world as a great, a seminal work, a seminal symphony. It was actually uh, composed and then premiered in 1937. Dmitry Shostakovich. 1937 was the height of Stalin's grip over Russia called the Soviet Union. And Shostakovich, obviously, if you listen to that music, and I urge you to go to your favorite source, whatever it is, and listen to the whole symphony, it'll be a 40-minute, 50-minute investment of your time, and it will be time well spent. Close your eyes and feel the timelessness and the spirit of the Russian people. Feel their emotion, because that emotion that is embodied, is captured by that symphony. That emotion, that power, is what is confronting the Ukrainians. And that was written in 1937, that symphony. Those scenes of, you know, the Russians entering Berlin, that was 1945. 
So that was actually written before, before that, that, that conclusive battle to World War II. But the music, the score, it's perfect. It's just perfect because it captures the indomitable spirit of the Russian people. And that's what the Ukrainians are facing today. That's what the Europeans are facing. That's what NATO's facing. That's what our leaders, well, actually, it's we the people. We the people are confronting that spirit. And, you know, that is so interesting to me because, um, just to share a personal anecdote, before I went off on a very uh, different path, shall I say, as a young man, very young, I was a, a professional violin player. And that's why I know this symphony secret society, this classical music uh, secret society. And what is the cornerstone of every secret society? Daily practice, daily ritual. Anything that is a secret society is, is secret in that it's altering the behavior, the beliefs, and the well-being of its participants. People join secret societies because they believe in what those secret societies are promoting. And in the symphony world, in the classical music world, what's promoted is a high development of personal skill to play classical instruments in a way that conforms to a set of rules that are part of this secret society or this secret culture. And if you're a professional symphony musician, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I was, I don't know, eight, nine years old. I started practicing the violin three to five hours a day. Every day. There's no days off. Every day. Because really, it's a physical activity no different than playing basketball. You're actually bringing forth a vision in your head. And this is what makes it so secret. You hear in your, in your mind's eye or your mind's ear, you hear a song, a melody, an emotion, and you train your body to transmit that emotion to other people mediated either by the human voice or an instrument that humanity developed over time. And these instruments, like the violins, some of them are worth, if you don't know this, some of them are worth millions and millions of dollars because the sounds that they emit are so refined and so beautiful that they're highly prized. They're pieces of art. So you have art here. There's art and creativity and rules and history. But the most important thing is when you listen to that Symphony Number no. 5 by Shostakovich, you're actually receiving cultural information about the Russian people. And the Russian school of classical music dominates and dominated the classical music world to this day and going back for hundreds of years, particularly in terms of violin playing. So here we have this group of people, the Russians, that NATO, is it, you know, really positioned to go to war with, that our elites, which I think are disconnected from we the people, but we the people elected them. So right now, we the people are arrayed to go to war or at war 
or are funding a war, however you want to talk about it. I personally feel that a proxy war is kind of a kind of a scam, right? We're at war with the Russians. You and me, we're fighting that music, that that Russian sentiment, that emotion, that indomitable spirit, the Russian spirit that Shostakovich so aptly captured. And what what's so what is such a great contradiction is the Russians are such a great pillar of support for Western civilization because one of the fundamental pieces of any culture is its art. Of course, culture and art, almost the same thing in the popular mind. Culture within an anthropological you know, context, within a university context, has a very different meaning than when we say, oh, that person's cultured. That means they, they, they have studied the culture, so to speak, of the culture. And the Russians, the Russian history and tradition of art, of literature, of music, it is so wound into the history of Western civilization, I have to say, why are we fighting with these people? They're one with us as Western culture. Their predominant culture, their, their base culture is Christianity. Now, they took a detour into Marxism, which we've talked about why that was, which was the, the unholy alliance of the crown, or as they said in Russia, the czars. And remember that last czar, Nikki, he was the first cousin of the king of England. So this was a kind of a hmm, very political thing we had going on here. And the czars were a hmm, divinely ordained family that were in league with the church, and they had all the resources. There's that pyramid. They're up at the top of the pyramid, and all the money was flowing uphill. And as I like that, I'm going to give myself one swear per podcast. The money was flowing uphill to the czars, and the shit was flowing downhill. And the Russian people were very poor. In fact, they were called peasants. Peasants. It was an agrarian society. And life was not good there because there was not a broad-based distribution of wealth and opportunity. And that is the, uh, the dichotomy, the, the way that Marx and the Marxists and the Bolsheviks were able to sneak in there and take advantage of the depravity of that organization of politics and subvert that culture. And it's, you know, the Russian people have been on a hundred-year effort to regain their footing, and they haven't largely, you know, there's a lot of debate about this. There's a lot of people that say, well, the Russians are scamming us. They're still communists. And there's certainly that, there is some element of truth to that. But there's been a huge resurgence of Christianity uh, in Russia, and uh, I think that we need to understand that the Russian people uh, and the Russian history and the Russian culture was aligned with the West up until the Bolshevik Revolution when Tsar Nikki was killed by the Bolsheviks, and that was the first cousin of the King of uh, England. And at that moment, 1917, since that time, well, we've had a lot of conflict with the Russians. Maybe it's personal. You know, sometimes we get into these conflicts and it's actually personal. And I want to remind everybody, our president, Franklin Roosevelt, who was a very liberal, liberal Democrat, 
leftist. One could almost say Virgin on being a communist himself. And he certainly had a communist vice president, Wallace. We know this with, with a certainty. Not me making an allegation. Just have to read what the man wrote. And that's what's great about people. A lot of them write down what they think. Then we don't have to fortune tell. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to make up a story. We just need to take their story. Now other people are going to say, well, they were scamming us with what they wrote. Could be true. Could be true. People are very sophisticated, particularly if they were raised in a secret society. They have exceptional skills. That's why it's a secret. But uh, we know he was a, a leftist of the highest order because of what he said and what he wrote and what he believed in and what he worked for. But President Roosevelt, who was a leftist also, generated a very positive relationship with uh, Stalin, Joseph Stalin, who was an autocrat dictator, a mass murderer, uh, not a nice guy, not a nice guy, but he was our ally during World War II. In other words, President Roosevelt, seeing the importance of an alliance against the Nazis, made a great relationship, and they called him Uncle Joe, Uncle Joe, Uncle Joe. Now, Churchill, who was also in power at the time, Winston Churchill, the English, they were back to the crown. He was an ardent anti-Soviet, an ardent anti-communist, because there was that pre-existing personal animus between the leaders of England and the communists in Russia that went back to the killing of the Tsar and the Tsar's family. It was kind of a, a breaking point in world history. But my point in this introduction about uh, the secret society of classical music is that the Russian classical music tradition and the classical music tradition here at Juilliard or Curtis, and, which are our top music schools here in the United States, if you haven't heard of it, there's a Juilliard School of Music. There's a Curtis School of Music. There's an Eastman School of Music. So a person like me that started practicing three or four or five hours a day when he was eight, nine years old, if you rose to the top, which I did, you had an opportunity to audition for and spend your college years not going to a land-grant institution or one of these you know, private Ivy League schools, but you could go into a music preparatory school or a music finishing school and then take your place in the you know, uh, pantheon of symphony, symphony musicians or, or, or solo performers. And uh, this is, a, you know, really a great life. I mean, it's, it's almost like being a priest. You know, let me, let me take that back. It's exactly like being a priest. You have specialized knowledge that is highly spiritualized in nature, and your conduct is, 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 is determined by that culture and you basically have a job for life because of your skill. Once you get into a symphony, uh, you, you have a you know you don't really have tenure, but it's hard to get rid of you. And you have a very um, it's a very beautiful lifestyle. I mean, I wanted it for myself. I just ended up going a different route for a variety of personal reasons. But the Russian uh, school of music, the Russian style of of, of developing classical musicians is identical and was actually the paradigm that we here in the United States sought to replicate. So let us not think that these Russian people are so foreign to us. This, this classical music, music culture is a 
critical, fundamental building block of our Western culture, and it's a way that people feel a timelessness and a, a connection with 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, and it is very political. This uh, symphony, number five, actually was titled by Shostakovich, A Soviet Artist's Practical and Creative Response to Just Criticism, also known as Symphony Number no. 5. I want to read this again because it's very political. Art is political. A Soviet artist's practical and creative response to just criticism. Stalin had gone to one of Shostakovich's operas and was very racy and very sexual and very, very um, postmodern. And Stalin stormed out, and uh, the next two days later, Pravda started to criticize Shostakovich. And he went into kind of a, um, mm, he was afraid that they were going to pick him up and put him in a gulag. He actually slept in the stairwell of his apartment because he believed that the Soviet uh, secret police were going to come arrest him, and he didn't want his children to see him dragged away. So he had so much love for his children and so much integrity that he went and slept on the back steps so as to not disturb his kids. That's sacred honor. That, that's a very honorable uh, principled man. But of course, he was a classically trained artist. And there is a lot of principle that is invested in the people that become symphony musicians and solo artists and, and, and composers. No, I'm not going to say there aren't all kinds of deviants in here, because there are. But the bar is set high. The bar is set high. These are gentle, kind people have dedicated their life to an art in a secret society. So Shostakovich thought he was going to get arrested, and he couldn't work, so he thought, I'm going to redeem myself. And he wrote this symphony. I love this title. A Soviet Artist's Practical and Creative Response to Just Criticism. And he tried to capture the zeitgeist of the time, and he, he dedicated and he made statements that you know, he was in support of the Soviet Union, which was, in fact, the Russian people. Because remember, every government, be it democratically elected or totalitarian, reflects the will of the people. Because there's way more of us than there are of them. So if something's going on we don't like and it continues to go on, it's because we're in on it, we accept it. And he understood that. So he wrote, I cannot think of my further progress apart from the socialist structure and the goal that I set for my work is to contribute at every point toward the growth of our remarkable country. Political. And he wrote this beautiful symphony, and he was redeemed. And this symphony is timeless, like Beethoven, like Bach. And for those of you that are not listening to classical music, invest in it. It will uplift you. It's a different kind of a language. It's a cultural transmission of timelessness. You know, this is something that I, I believe in and I'm, I'm working on in my own life. The lies that were taught, the lies that were taught by secret societies that are dedicated to manipulating our culture and our history so that their goals are achieved. One of the critical, most important cornerstones of secret societies 
And there's really only one secret society. The rest of these secret societies, when they say they're secrets, that's called advertising. Hey, everybody wants to get in on a secret, right? Hey, if you take a kid, and I know this, if I have, I have kids, right? So if you got, say, 10 rooms in your house, and you say, kids, I'm going to the movies tonight. Nine rooms, you can go in. But this 10th room, that door is closed. That room is barred off from you. Don't go in that room. The minute you walk out that front door, your kids, my kids, all kids, going right into that closed room. Because we like secrets. It's just, you know, it's part of who we are. Remember Curiosity Killed the Cat? I realize there's some of us that learn over time not to stick their hand down garbage disposals. But, A, sometimes it takes a few trips on that, like touching the stove when it's hot. It takes a few practice rounds to understand that if you touch that hot stove, you're going to get burned. So we like secrets. In most secret societies, when they say secret society, you know what? They're just looking for people to join by saying it's a secret. It makes it cool. There's one secret society that's really a secret, and we're going to get down to those people sometime over the next couple of podcasts. But I, I'm using this symphony, this classical music uh, secret society as kind of a, a model because they do have a goal in the classical music world. There is a goal. They are transmitting cultural information. They're, they're a fundamental building block of Western culture. That's classical music. I enjoy it. I don't listen to it as much as I used to, and I don't play violin anymore. And I don't do that because, hey, that's something you got to do three hours a day. If you can't put three hours a day into it at least, then just hang it up, okay? So, you know, Shostakovich, um, Shostakovich has been roundly criticized. Why? Because it's political. So many people in the West said he was a sellout to these uh, communist forces, that he, he tried to redeem himself and get himself back in the good graces, which, of course, he wanted to eat, and he wanted to be with his kids, and he didn't want to get dragged off to a gulag. Okay, but I look at it a little bit differently. I read so many reviews of his work that were being written now in the you know in this period, modern period, because his, mu his music keeps getting recycled, right? They keep playing it. Minneapolis Symphony, or Minnesota Orchestra plays it. You know, the Berlin Philharmonic plays it. The New York Philharmonic plays it. You know, there's these great symphonies, and, and his, his work is constantly refreshed and played. In fact, this symphony number five, I, I remember it by heart. I can probably play most of it. If I could still have the physical skills, I can remember it in my mind. Remember, what does a secret society do? You take something in your mind that you see that other people don't see, and you train in a mechanism of making it reality. Oh, there's the secret. There's nothing more to it than that. It's called the act of creativity. That's the big secret, okay? How do you create something? So, you know, all these people are critical of Shostakovich because it suits the current narrative about the Russians. Russians bad. United States good, right? Okay, so let's criticize Shostakovich for knuckling under to the pressure of the Soviet. Well, first of all, all these people, let's see how they're going to do if they're sleeping in a stairwell thinking about getting arrested and dragged away. It takes a little bit of bravery 
to even get up in the morning. But I look at it totally different because I, I'm trained in these, creati- these creative arts, right? Three times. Three different secret societies. And um, he, he really never knuckled under. What he did was, he said, by any means possible, I am going to take what I hear, what I'm given, because those people who are artists know something very hard to codify is going on. How is it that you can hear something that complex in your head and get it on paper and then have a cultural mechanism of 100 musicians that are skilled enough to play what it is you've put together for them and it has a cultural meaning and a significance capturing the zeitgeist of the times. This is very, very big, okay? This is big. This is not something you get up in the morning and say, oh, I'm going to write a symphony. I'd like you to get up tomorrow. The first thing in your mind is, I'm going to write a symphony. Never played a musical instrument. Don't know anything about symphonies. What I'm trying to say is, you have to practice this for decades to be a player. That's the hallmark of a secret society. Are you devoting yourself to the mechanisms that are in that secret society to develop those skills of bringing forth creativity? That's what it really is. That's what it is. Changing the nature of our world through practice. So when I say, please get off the couch and join your local political party, that's a secret society. You got to work on it every day. Now, if you want to sit at home and complain, that's okay, but it's not very productive. The productivity comes from doing the work, the everyday work, practicing and developing the skills to take your ideas and make them real. Take your ideas and make them real. Who in our society has the will, the will, to do that? And that's what's so interesting about Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, that I put with that will to conquer the Nazis. They conquered them. This was total war. There was no negotiation. They beat a man-to-man in the street and defeated them. And we've had, we've had decades of relative freedom from the Darwinism, which is Nazism. And who, who defeated these people? The Soviets. Fundamentally a Christian culture with deep ties to the best elements of art, literature, sport. Sports is a big part of this. Music, visual arts, ballet. These people are really one with us in Western culture. And Shostakovich redeemed himself with the Soviet Union. But what I think he was doing as a person that's trained, I think he had a giant F you to these people. And what it was was, I'm going to make this reality by any means necessary. And my overwhelming capability and capacity to produce infinitely relevant art infinitely into the past, infinitely into the future. Shostakovich, if there is a world, will be spoken of 500 years from now. 
Stalin might be forgotten. Shostakovich will not because his work will be preserved within the secret society. Oh, now we got another little element of the secret society. It preserves creativity and transmits it to future generations. Oh, that's called enduring, enduring, endurance. He said, by any means necessary, I'm going to bring forth my creativity because he knew there was something that we really can't cap. We don't really know how that happens. Now, I'm being a little tricky about this. I know exactly how it happens, but I don't want to take a position on it because I want to keep you listening. There is a science to this, but the science is codifying something that is not really in the realm of science. Like I say, we're trying to get the truth. We don't get the truth. We get as close up to it as we can. So Shostakovich, the, the, the breadth and the depth of his artistry and his creativity, he was so big and so important that even Stalin, who killed millions, had to back off a little bit because, hey, there was only one Shostakovich. It's always great to be one of a kind, right? So it appears the Russians are winning this war. And why shouldn't they? Look at their cultural traditions. They're indomitable. They're deep. They're timeless. They're infinite. They're attached to the infinite. And they appear to be winning this war. They appear to be. Now, um, why do I say this? I don't, I can't verify what any of the pundits are saying, but I'm a tireless consumer of news and information. And I've heard from many sources that for every one Russian soldier that dies, seven to 10 Ukrainians die. Let me say this again. For every one Russian soldier that's killed, seven to 10 Ukrainians die. Uh, this is a fairly, um, that's pretty horrifying, right? I mean, if you think about it, they're crazy. So there, there is no more Ukrainian young men. They're all being killed. And uh, when I say they're all being killed, they've all been killed. So in the history of warfare, when you got a seven-to-one disparity in, in mortality, the only way the Ukrainians win is if the cavalry comes to their rescue. And who's the cavalry? Well, that would be NATO. That would be NATO. So the head of Russia's most prominent mercenary firm, the Wagner Group, Wagner, Wagner, Prigozhin, this guy dresses up in military gear and goes right to the front, okay? This guy, he's in charge of the group. It's a private business. He's a mercenary business. Hey, we have a lot of those people here in this country too. He's on the payroll, but he's not part of the government. He's aligned with the government. He's got his group of people. And they went in there, and they've been at the front at, in the Bakhmut region. And he, he, this Prigozhin says that Russia has accomplished its primary goals and aims, and uh, that at this point it's time to sit down and have a peace treaty. And why does he say that? Well, he knows. He knows that if it goes any farther from where it is right now, it's going to escalate. And this guy is a stone killer. So when stone killers start to say, 
let's put our weapons down. When a stone killer is a peacemaker, I think we better pay attention. Tanner, could you play this next piece uh, about Stoltenberg in the Ukraine, please? A handshake that will infuriate Russia. President Volodymyr Zelensky hosted the leader of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, for a meeting in Kyiv. And after more than a year of war, Stoltenberg carried a message that Ukraine can eventually find a place in the Western military alliance. Let me be clear. Ukraine's rightful place is in the Euro-Atlantic family. Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO. And over time, our support will help you make this possible. It's not the first time Stoltenberg has said this kind of thing, but the symbolism of him saying it in Kyiv is powerful. The Kremlin was quick to respond, saying that Ukraine's shift towards NATO was one of the reasons why Russia began what it calls its special operation in the first place. But for President Zelensky, it's a moment of hope. We interpret this visit of the Secretary General, the first of the full-scale war, as a sign that the NATO alliance is ready to start a new chapter in relations with Ukraine, a chapter of ambitious decisions. I urge the Secretary General to help overcome the restraint of our partners in supplying some weapons, including long-range weapons, modern aviation, artillery and armour. Delaying decisions is time that is lost for peace, and this means the lives of our warriors. What Zelensky will immediately get is more of this. Russian-designed MiG-29 fighter jets donated by its neighbor and NATO member, Slovakia. They may be old stock, retired from use by Slovakia last year, but Ukrainian pilots are familiar with them and they can go straight into service as Ukraine prepares for its imminent spring offensive. But more immediate needs are defensive. Russian air attacks by missiles and drones continue. Eight civilians were killed in this attack on the eastern city of Slovansk last week. The Ukrainian Air Force Command now admits that it needs more ammunition for its air defenses. So here we are, right back where we started. The Wagner Group saying, okay, that's enough. Why? Because even though the Russians have consolidated the eastern Donbass region, and the special operation was started because of the increasing likelihood of Ukraine joining NATO, which puts NATO right up on the Russian border. And now Finland is joined. I mean, NATO's not backing off here, right? So where are we going to head with this? If the Russians, which they seem to have about a million troops massed in that region, and they're confronting uh, really, the Ukrainian army's shot. Air def- we learned in the leaked documents which came out from the young airmen. If they're true or false, we don't know. But what was leaked was the Ukrainian air defenses are almost completely degraded. And without air defense, hey, you don't want to be on the ground without air defense in modern, modern warfare. I mean, this has been doctrine since World War II. You have to coordinate your air defense with your ground forces or your ground forces are, you know, hamburger. So. The, uh, the likelihood of a Russian breakout, and there seems to be 20,000 Poles. The rumor is there's 20,000 Polish, you know, the cavalry, the Poles. They're jumping right in there. And there's 20,000 Polish fighters in the Ukraine. Hey, what's going on here? This is becoming a general war. 
So even the Wagner Group, Prigozhin, you know, but what you would have to say is a crime boss, right? He's in charge of a giant mercenary army that functions all over the world. Uh, he's saying it's time for peace because he knows if this goes on any further and if the Russians break out and start rumbling across the Ukraine towards the Polish border, it may bring about, and what Stoltenberg is saying is, Ukraine's part of NATO. They might just say, okay, de facto, you're part of NATO, and now we have a general war in Europe, okay? That's what Prigozhin is afraid of. And conversely, if the NATO forces are able to push the Russians back, the Russians have said, we're not going to suffer a strategic defeat at our border. We'll use nuclear weapons. They're, we're into the no-win zone now. So even the guys that are on the payroll and getting paid to fight are saying, hey, let's have a schnapps, let's have a, a vodka, let's sit down, cut a deal, and let's get on with life. There's lots of good things to do besides kill each other. And, you know, I'm going to say blessed are the peacemakers. They come from the strangest of uh, places. And we need to watch this. And here's another kind of weird thing. You know, if you watch uh, MSNBC or any of the major networks, they're talking about the Ukrainian spring offensive. Hey, who has an offensive and advertises it? That'd be a scam. You don't, everything you want to do in military, you want to have a little surprise, right? Kind of keep the opponents off guard. Screw them up, right? Subterfuge. Not these people. They're advertising that they're going to have a spring offensive. Come on. Something's not right here. And there is no movement in our United States government that I can perceive to have any kind of rapprochement, any kind of a negotiation, anything that would lead us to a secession of hostilities and a dampening down of what really is a nuclear escalation. So please, let your elected officials know how you feel about this because it's only going to be the pressure we place upon. Now, if you think nuclear war is a fun thing, hey, go for it. There's a lot of people out there that want to find out what happens on the other side. You won't like it. Watching people you love die is not fun. Okay? If you've ever been there, you know. It's not fun. It leads to what they call post-traumatic stress disorder. I have it. It's not fun. Can't sleep. Anxious all the time. You know, it's not fun. Let's try to ensue well-being. It makes for a much better life. Meanwhile, Back here in Minnesota, where we are unable to muster any semblance of unity, any semblance of sanity, because if we were sane, we'd be sitting down in our political units and saying, do we support this war in the Ukraine? But see, we're not supposed to do that. But I'm going to tell everybody that's exactly what we're going to do, because there are people like me driving into these political parties, be they Democrats or Republicans or independents, doesn't matter. Get into your political party and start asking the people questions. Do we support the war in the Ukraine? Hey, you know, um, I was alive in the 1960s and 70s. I come out, and I've said this, but my parents were communists. My father was a leader of the anti-Vietnam War protests in Minnesota. He was a leader. I mean, he was a ringleader. The ringleader. He, I don't want to say he was the ringleader, but he was definitely a ringleader. And... Uh, you know, there are so many people in the Democrat Party that are, you know, my age, that were anti-war as the core of their adherence to the Democrat Party. Free speech, 
you know, free speech, freedom to assemble, anti-war. Millions of young people in the late 60s and 70s, millions, millions protesting. These people are all in the Democrat Party now, or most of them are. Where are they? How can they not speak up? So I'm going to say to my, my liberal friends, which I can talk to you because I know your language, could you ask the Democrat Party why they're supporting this war? At the next meeting, could you raise your hand and say, I have a, I'd like to make a motion. I make a motion that we discuss the war in Ukraine. Can I have a second? Second. Okay, great. We're going to discuss this. Do, does our political unit, the, the 14 people in this room, do we support the war in Ukraine? Ask that question. Find out what the people that you're involved with really think. Make them take a position. Make them take a position on it because it will help you clarify who you are and where you're at. We have to do this now. We can't be doing business as usual in these parties. We're $32 trillion in debt, and we're on the verge of nuclear war. Okay? So what's going on in the parties? Okay, I'm going to talk about the party I'm involved with, which is the Republican Party, which I seldom say. But I say it seeking a new kind of Republican Party politics. You know, I've never said this before because, you know, there's all this fear. Oh, my gosh, they're going to throw me out. Well, hey, if you have the votes to throw me out, throw me out. I don't want to do business the way we've been doing business because we're in $32, $32 trillion in debt. $32 trillion in debt. $32 trillion in debt. And on the verge of nuclear war, and we're going to do business as usual? No, we're not going to do that. We're going to have a new politics about well-being and about the well-being of the American people, about my well-being and the well-being of my children, which requires a completely different kind of thinking. So I want to know, in my local party, do we support the Ukraine war? I'm going to ask that question. Now, what are we really doing in the party? Well, we got two groups. We got a traditionalist group, what we'd call the silk-stocking Republicans that go back to the Reagan era. They believe in low taxes and low regulation. That's what they want. Socially liberal, that's not their line of country. They're in it for the money. They're materialists. They're not in it for any kind of spiritual dimension. They want low taxes, and they want no regulation. They want to do whatever they want to do as far as it benefits their pocketbook. That's who they are. That's the traditional wing, the Reagan wing, okay? Let's just call them for who they are. And they're about average age, 75 years old. There's another wing of the party that came in with the Trump people. Actually, it goes back to the Tea Party and et cetera and so on. People that have had enough, and they want not a globalist world where we're pursuing profits at the expense of everything. They want a national, sovereign United States of America where there's something going on for the we the people. And they have been associated with Trump, which I think is a mistake. President Trump is a salesman, and he's a great salesman. Let him sell. But the idea, the ideas of having national sovereignty, about moving back from a global governance, which it's too far from the people. Remember, my theory is if you get governance too far from the people where the people are living, those people that we erect up there, up into the ivory towers, they don't give a shit about the people. The eating's good where they are. The living is good. They forget where they came from. So I don't. I personally don't think we can have governmental structures that are 
way far away from the neighborhoods within which we live. I like to have things local. And we got these two groups. We got the globalist group, which is the traditional low-tax, low-regulation corporatocracy Republicans. They're the corporatocracy. Money at all costs, okay? By all means necessary, it's all about the money, okay? And then we got this more spiritual group, which we would hope they're spiritual. They, they believe in some spiritual ideas like America, the idea of America, a sovereign America, fiscally responsible. A lot of them are religious, which is in a whole other conversation. But these two groups really have been at war with each other since Trump hit the scene in 2015. At war! They hate each other. They hate each other. But we're not supposed to talk about it. Don't work it out. Don't bring it up. Just hate each other quietly. As if that's going to generate the kind of political constituency and coordination that's going to lead to a an argument that is embraced by all the people. Because what I want, what I'm looking for, I don't want a 50-50 America. That's ridiculous. That only serves forces that seek to divide us. Let us remember, there are very sophisticated people that come out of secret societies. They're trained in secret societies. We have this one, the symphonies, the classical music. It's a secret society, okay? Any of you out there have PhDs? I'm just wondering. Because if you have a PhD, you understand the university is a secret society. All of our kids are kind of cannon fodder, getting their four-year degrees in, I don't know, uh, English, gender studies, uh, whatever it is that's in the liberal arts now, okay? And it was that way when I went there, anthropology, sociology, history, political science, economics. This is all kind of a, a fugazi. That kind of obscures what's really going on there. What's really going on is the, the best kids at math, because that's what our educational system rewards. The best kids at math and science, they're hiding in there with all the other millions of students, and they get discovered. You know, they knew they were good at math in seventh grade. Well, I knew I was really good at math in seventh grade, best in my school. I was really good. As You know, I graduated high school a year early. When I graduated a year early in 11th grade, hey, I was the best at math in my school. When I got to the uh, East Coast school I went to, hey, you know, there was a lot of guys that were good at math, and there was a lot of women that were good at math. In fact, not only they were good at it, they liked it. I was good at it, but I didn't like it. I liked to do other things, like, I don't know, athletics. I like, you know, kind of artistic things. These guys and gals, these people like to be in that math world, that science world. It felt good to them, and they got sucked up into the Ph.D. programs. And you get up into a Ph.D. program funded by our government to the tune of $400 billion a year, which is 40% of what's spent on higher education, you enter a secret society. If you have a PhD, you understand how it works. But let me share with you, if you're not, you have to get very specialized training. You have to apprentice and serve your time. you got to work, I don't know, round the clock, studying, okay? You have to come up with original product, creative product, that contributes to the knowledge of Western civilization. You have to come up with something new, and that's not easy to do. So you have to serve your time. You have to teach. You have to be a teaching assistant. So you have a, a Ph.D. advisor. He's got to teach because, of course, they got to keep up appearances, right? So they, they let you go work with all of the basket weavers. 
So you have to teach them the best you can whilst you work on your Ph.D. under the advice and leadership of your advisor, who already has a Ph.D. He's a great man or woman. They have tenure. They have rules. There's rules there. There's things that you can do, and there's things that you can't do. There's ways that you dress. There's a tradition. There's great men. We're going to talk about one of the greatest of the greats here very shortly, Sir Bertrand Russell. There's a tradition there. You have to learn that tradition. You've got to learn it just like if you're going to be a symphony musician or a composer. You've got to learn the history. You've got to go back and look at all the literature back to day one. You have to familiarize yourself with the discipline. You have to make relationships with other people that are coming up through the ranks. And you're formed and shaped, and voila, you're ready to go to work for the military-industrial complex for a very good pay after you get your Ph.D., after you get your Ph.D. And you can't get your Ph.D. if your ideas diverge from the orthodoxy because you have to go before a panel. Now your advisor takes you to his pals. Pals. These guys are pals. Remember, they chum around in the same department, maybe for 20, 30 years together. They're an orthodoxy. They are promoting what they believe, and they get to take you and teach you what they believe. And if you don't think like they do, hey, guess what? You can go get a job like me in the business world. If you stand up to them and you say, hey, guess what? That's BS. You get a couple shots at that, and then it's, Hit the streets, buddy. You're out of here. So it's a secret society, and it has a goal. And we've said, what is the secret society of the universities? Humanism. Secular humanism. The scam is it's secular. That's a scam. Actually, the entire university system is about the power of the human intellect to positively shape the evolution of Homo sapiens. That's what the whole project's about. And it's been that way since the 1880s when Darwin came up with the codification of the theory of evolution. And as I've said, he was on the payroll of the crown. And what a great way to justify your business model of slavery and piracy and drugs. If I'm smarter and stronger than you, of course I get to dominate you. That's the theory of evolution. The survival of the fittest. What a great group of guys. And they have complete control of the university system. And we wonder why everything's screwed up. They want it to be screwed up. Because they're so smart, right? If they wanted to be well-being, we could accomplish it. But their secret society has a completely different goal, which is the overthrow of the 6,000 years of tradition, which we call the Judeo-Christian bedrock of Western civilization. And they've succeeded. And how do they do it? Well, one of the primary ways they do it is they make people hate each other. These people are experts at this. So in the Republican Party now, we have two groups of people, as I was saying. We got this traditionalist group, and we got this nationalist group. I'm not going to call them Trumpers, because this group's going to be out there long after Trump is gone. They hate each other. Hate. Every once in a while, it comes up to the surface, too. Most of the time, they keep it damped down, because this is Minnesota. Hey, Minnesota, nice. We like to get along with each other. Very seldom does somebody actually come out and say, I hate you. But they do it. I get a lot of it. My back has started to look like a pincushion from getting stabbed by these people. Anyhow, I digress. 
Let me just say, this argument, nationalist, globalist, they've taken it down a notch to obscure it. Now we have a new theory called ballot out, ballot in. The Republican Party is supposed to go out and chase ballots because that's what the Democrats do. We're supposed to learn from our Democrats. They've changed the laws, and we have to take advantage of those laws if we ever want to get any of our Republican candidates elected. And then on the other hand, we got a group, these are the nationalists, because this group on the ballot chasers, these are, of course, the traditionalists. You know, they want to be like Democrats. And then we got this other group, the nationalist group. They're concerned about the integrity and the rules that surround the elections. Two groups hate each other, have completely different goals and methods and tactics, but they have one thing in common. They're both saying the same thing. The message doesn't matter. And that's really of deep concern to me, and I know I have close friends in in both groups, and they're going to hear me say this, and I'm going to get a lot of criticism, but I'm going to say, please, before we start criticizing, let, let, let let me explain my theory here. It says, judge not lest you be judged. We live our life by the judgments we hold. What we're saying in these elections now is, unless we get this electioneering right, be it through ballot out, ballot in, or by dealing with the election laws and strategies and what's happening in the election machinery, unless we get this sorted out, the message doesn't matter. And I have a different idea. My idea is, Let's come up with a completely new message. Let's not have it tied to the parties. And why do I say that? $32 trillion in debt and on the verge of nuclear war. These people have had control since 1963. Look what they've generated for my children, for your children. And if you have some plans to live for a while longer, for you and me, we're totally screwed, screwed. And we're supposed to be told this is an accident. They want us to believe it. It's an accident. Shit happens. No, this kind of shit doesn't happen. This is very intentional, what's happening here. Now, some of it could have developed, you know, relatively by accident. But somebody from a secret society with great skills of creativity, and we're going to start talking about some of these people, they manipulated the mentally weak, and they created these conditions. So what I'm seeking is a new message a new politics about human well-being that is so attractive to the American people that both parties resonate with it. And instead of having this 51-49 thing, how about 70-30? I want all the people that are with human well-being on one side of the equation and all the people that want humans to die on the other. And that's really what we're talking about here. I'm just gonna, I was I wasn't going to get into this but let me just say I found a a uh, United Nations website about population here it is you can all go find it it's just a picture of 8 billion people and I realized on here that there the reason I was interested in it there was uh, you know some sources where it was coming from because of course the United Nations is a secret society Any of you in the United Nations? Any of us know how the United Nations work? I don't think so. I don't think we have a clue what's going on there. So this chart 
that I'm talking about was put out by the United Nations Population Division. And I went to their website and I read it very carefully. And it's very, very reasonable. Very, very vanilla. Very vanilla. I'm going to read it. The division was established in 1946 to serve as the Secretariat of the Population Commission. Over the years, it has contributed to and supported the Global Dialogue on Population and Development at the United Nations, producing regularly updated demographic estimates and projections for all countries, as well as providing data which are essential for monitoring the status of implementation of internationally agreed development goals in the area of population, including those contained in the Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs. I didn't have to read any further. I knew they were referencing something that most people weren't going to go look up because it's just too much work, right? I mean, come on. Why would I want to get in the way of watching porn on the Internet or getting high or watching the NBA? Why would I want to take my time to save myself? So they make it hard to get to. But not for me. Because I do take the time, and I'm hoping I can encourage you to take the time. Because there's nothing like finding it for yourself. So I looked up these SDGs. Sustainable Development Goals. We all hear about sustainability. Sounds great. You know, recycle your potato skins, right? That's what we think it is. They, they want, that's how it started out. That's how the nose went under the tent. You know, recycling. I mean, who's going to get who who's going to get on the other side of recycling? Right. This is how smart these secret society people are. They know how to manipulate us. Let me read you number seventeen. The international community must foster recognition of the urgent need to end human population growth as soon as is ethically possible and promote greater investment in empowering solutions. What kind of solutions do we have for human population growth, I must ask you? We could think of a few. Well, we could start out with destroying families, fostering alternative lifestyles that don't involve children, uh, maybe a woman's right to choose could be in there because there's a lot less kids. Hey, maybe it could be all about polluting the earth with all kinds of chemicals that cause all kinds of cancers and degenerative diseases and sterility. Maybe it has something to do with uh, bathing us in radiation. Uh, maybe it has something to do with just eugenics, period. Period. You know, when I read promote greater investment in empowering solutions, and they don't define them very clearly, I, hey, you know what? I think we got to pay attention. And I'm not saying I'm taking the other side on a woman's right to choose. This stuff is complicated, okay? They use these secret societies. These are not stupid people. I spent 20 years of my life practicing the violin three to five hours a day, every single day. And I followed that up with very intense training, physical training, for the next 20 years, which gave me a whole other set of skills. It's kind of a yin and yang, actually. I remember the guy who was training me when we were, he said, hey, if you want to be a violin player, go find something else to do, okay? I gave it up. 
I gave it up to learn how to kill people. But hey, that was my decision at the time. Anyhow, uh, we need to understand that these secret societies are out there. The United Nations is a secret society, and it has a goal, which has a beautiful cover name called sustainability. Now let's let's talk about uh, uh, let's talk about this message before we move on. I, I can't get off of it. Please, please humor me. I had, and I think I said this, a member of the party, an officer, say. The message doesn't matter. It's all about getting the ballots. Okay, what we're doing here with this is we're trapping ourselves in a 50-50 polity which hates itself and hates each other. We've got to get off of this. We've got to get off of this. We've got to realize that there are Democrats and Republicans, independents, American citizens that are seeking the kind of politics that bring us all together as the American people. And nothing could or should bring us together more than wanting to live. If we understand that global governance is concerned about reducing population and they're selling it to us as the earth can't handle 8 billion people, their theory of the case is we got to have less people. How are we going to get there? How are we going to get to less people? We need to focus on this. We're going to talk about this more. I don't want to go too fast. Many of you who are watching know where I'm headed with this. We cannot trust our elites. They've given us $32 trillion of debt, and we're on the verge of nuclear war. They're out. All of them. Every last one of them. Every last one of them need to be retired. Now, I personally don't think they need to be prosecuted. I'd like to have a truth commission and have them come forward like in South Africa which Nelson Mandela set up with the Reverend Desmond Tutu, and let these people come in and tell us what went on in those secret societies. We're not going to put you in jail. We're not going to hang you. We're not hanging you. You know, that's what they did in World War II. At the end of World War II, they hung a bunch of Germans, Nazis, 50 or so. Well, we imported thousands and thousands of Nazis. And their secret society went on, was never really looked into. We imported the secret society into our universities where they were very good at expanding their influence. Let's not do that this time. Let's not make that mistake. Let's get these people in front of the American people and let them tell us what's going on in these secret societies, that we might all understand that we are inventory, that we are scheduled for termination, and that they're, in fact, killing us. And when we realize that as the American people, and, you know, there's going to be people around me think, oh, he's gone over the edge. Read the documents. Read them. These people are not hiding. You know what? I have to get into something right now, and I'm going to have to find it, and it probably won't be easy for me. I have to read. I want to talk about Sir Bertrand Russell. Sir Bertrand Russell, Sir Bertrand Russell was the first Yoval Noah Harari. Now, Sir Bertrand Russell, for those of you who don't know him, but we're going to see him. Let's play him first. Let's play this piece on Bertrand Russell. The first one on God. I do not pretend to be able to prove that there is no God. I equally cannot prove that Satan is a fiction. The Christian God may exist, so may the gods of Olympus or of ancient Egypt, 
or Babylon. But no one of these hypotheses is more probable than any other, they lie outside the region of even probable knowledge, and therefore there is no reason to consider any of them. And if there were a God, I think it very unlikely that he would have such an uneasy vanity as to be offended by those who doubt his existence. We are told that sin consists in acting contrary to God's commands, but we are also told that God is omnipotent. If he is, nothing contrary to his will can occur, therefore when the sinner disobeys his commands, he must have intended this to happen. Religion is a set of beliefs held as dogmas, dominating the conduct of life, going beyond or contrary to evidence, and inculcated by methods that are emotional or authoritarian, not intellectual. Okay, for those of you that don't know, this is classic Satanism. This Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell is one of the most influential figures of the 20th century. I'm going to read one more thing that he wrote so we can get this guy in a context. This is Sir, Sir Bertrand, Bertrand Russell on the payroll of the Crown at Cambridge. This is a quote. Gradually, now this is, let me tell you something. This guy, which I'm going to tell, let me tell you beforehand. This guy influenced all the post-colonialist period scholars. All of them looked up to this guy like he was a god. This guy was the leading British intellectual of the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. He died in 1960s. So all of the post-World War II GI Bill graduates of our academic institutions were steeped in this guy's philosophy. He was, he was renowned as a logician. He, he wrote a book, I think it was called Principia Mathematica, which was a phenomenal logics book. It made him famous, rock star, rock star in this secret society called the academic. Rock star. And this guy was a raging Satanist who was in a secret society, and that's what we're going to talk about. And I want to tell you how secret it was. It wasn't that secret. He wrote the shit down. Excuse me for swearing, but I get so angry about this because we've allowed this kind of anti-human, anti-well-being philosophy to permeate our institutions, our academic institutions. <clears throat> there goes my voice. I'm getting so mad. I'm going to work on this with you. I want to keep a mellifluous voice at all times. This guy was the first Nobel, Yoval Noah Harari, number one. He was the first spokesman of the New World Order. And here's something he wrote. Fantastic, right? Don't have to make it up. He wrote it down. Quote, gradually, by selective breeding, the congenital difference between rulers and the ruled will increase until they become almost different species. A revolt of the plebes would become as unthinkable as an organized insurrection of sheep against the practice of eating mutton. Go look this up. You need to think about this one. This is who's leading the charge, okay? And we're going to look at him a little bit more in the next 15 minutes. This guy is revered in the intellectual tradition. By selective breeding. Right when you read selective breeding, you got a Darwinist and you got a eugenicist, okay? This is eugenics. And wherever there's selective breeding, there's genocide. They go together like hand in glove. A revolt of the people, when he says plebes, he means, you know, people like you and me would become as unthinkable as an organized insurrection of sheep 
against the sheep being slaughtered. That's what he's saying. They're trying to set up such a huge difference through selective breeding, which means positive eugenics, which means humanism, which means the intellect of the human mind applied to the process of evolution. You got to remove God from this equation, right? That's what the origin of species was. It was a new creation myth. It removed the Bible. Now it was all about man's intellect. And with this guy, this, this hugely important figure, which probably most have never heard his name, died in 1960. Why do I know him? He was hugely influential in my family because my father was an academic that, you know, did his study right after 1945. And you couldn't, you couldn't exist without Alfred North Whitehead, who was Rust, you know, Bertrand Russell's teacher. You couldn't study. I mean, this is the underpinnings of what your children are learning at university. You're paying for this. I'm paying for it. I should, you know, when I say you, I mean me, okay? I have kids in university right now. I'm paying for them to learn this. I'm angry about it. And I hope my daughter watches this and comes home. But, you know, she's a Darwinist, so, you know, she doesn't even know she's a Darwinist. She doesn't even know what they're te teaching her because the people that are teaching her are the TAs trying to get into that secret society, and they're brainwashing her, and she doesn't know it. She probably thinks I'm brainwashed, you know, because I believe in God. I must be stupid. Anyhow, this Russell, Bertrand Russell, in the few minutes I have left today with you, and then we're going to go on because, you know, I'm going to talk about his secret society and what it generated. And when I say again, these secret societies, they're not really secrets. There's one secret society. The rest of them are just looking for action, right? Hey, I'm secret. Give me your money. Come on, give me your children. Come on, send them on over. Russell was born in 1872. This guy goes back away, right? Oh, I'm wrong. He died in 1970. Even better, lived through the 60s. Please let me correct myself. He had a huge influence on a whole, you know, like all these British academics of that era. You know, mathematics, logic, set theory, linguistics, artificial intelligence. You didn't know it went back that far, did you? Into the 50s and 60s. They've been working on this for a long time. All funding, all funding of our universities going back 100 plus years has been to set up artificial intelligence and biotechnology necessary to evolve humanity such that Homo sapiens is extinct. I'm not making it up. These people write it down. It's all over the YouTube. Go learn what these people are up to because we might be able to come up with a political messaging that maybe 80% of the American people might be down with, which is called we want to live. We are the well-being party. We are the people that want to survive. We don't want to be evolved. We don't want to be clipped out. Because when they say evolve Homo sapiens, it sounds great, right? Until you realize you're a Homo sapien and you're now re you're going to be irrelevant. These are the Nazis. Okay, we're going to have to talk, I guess, about that secret society between the British and the Germans, too. And that would be called the academic institutions. He was one of the early 20th century's most prominent logis logicians and a founder of the analytic philosophy. Okay, this guy was big time. And then, oh, he decided to get involved in a little group interestingly called the Apostles. 
a secret society at Cambridge University, the Apostles. You know, like the Apostles of Christ? These guys were not interested in being the Apostles of the Judeo-Christian bedrock of our society. They had a different idea. So, you know, what I do is in my own way, which I encourage you to do it too. I went to King's College, Cambridge. I went to their website, and I said, okay, certainly this is a secret society. There won't be anything there. And much to my surprise, these people promote the secret society. And here's what they say. i got to read this. Hilarious. This is on Cambridge University's, the King's College. It's on their website. You can go look it up. This month, we take a look at one of Cambridge's best unkept secrets, the Apostles. The Apostles is a secret society of Cambridge University. The members meet to discuss and debate such topics as truth, God, and ethics. The group, also known as the Cambridge Conversation Society, was founded in 1820 by George Tomlinson. Tomlinson went on to become the first bishop of Gibraltar. That would be the Anglican bishop, which you have to ask yourself, and you know what, let me just go out on a limb. Anglicans, you know, they're Darwinists, okay? They have a completely different view of this thing and of religion. I, I actually sent my, my children to a religious school thinking it was religious, and when I got in there, I found out it was Anglican. Well, surprise, surprise. They taught my kids that religion is a, a scam, and I paid for it. I actually paid for this. This is how stupid I am. Let me be self-revelatory about how I feel about this. One did not simply join the apostles, and in the early days, election had to be unanimous. A potential candidate did not know he was proposed. He, no she's at that time, he was proposed until he was accepted. So these people went out and cultivated relationships with that group of cannon fodder, the apostles. They went through the cannon fodder and said, oh, that one's very smart. That one we want to suck up into the educational system of the crowd. And Bertrand Russell became a member of the apostles. Isn't that interesting? Well, there was other people there. Oh, active members of the were known as the apostles, and former members such as graduates or fellows are referred to as angels. Well, these people were not angels, and they were not apostles. They were hardcore Darwinists, willing to use any political philosophy at their disposal to achieve their aim of eugenics. That's who they are. That's who they were. And let's drag them before the Truth Commission so we don't have to deal with them in the future. Please, if you're an apostle, come before the American people and tell us what you talked about at the apostles and what you did in government with that knowledge. When we get down to this kind of analysis and this kind of healing, we have a shot at having a future. So, George Tomlinson founded the Apostles in 1820 at Cambridge. And he went on and became the uh, bishop at Westminster Abbey. That's the seat of the Anglican Church, right? There's Westminster Cathedral, which is the Catholic Church. No, this guy went to the Abbey, Anglican, you know, King, George, you know, King Henry, you know, kill, kill your wives, you know, and change the rules. These kind of people, into rule changers. Uh, he arrived in Gibraltar in 1842. 
And uh, he was aligned with the Crown's uh, subjugation of Gibraltar. You know, piracy, drugs, and slavery. He was in on it. Well, there's a lot of other interesting apostles. Here's a name you might like to know. You might know him. John Maynard Keynes. Oh, famous economist. We call it Keynesian economics. That would be the government intervening into the free market to achieve what? That would be communism. The theories of John Maynard Keyes, known as Keynesian economics, center around the idea that governments should play an active role in their country's economies instead of just letting the free market reign. Specifically, Keynes advocated federal spending to mitigate downturns in the business cycles. Far from wanting to rehabilitate capitalism, Keynes was building a case to replace it with a form of democratic socialism in which most large-scale capital investment spending would be undertaken by the state or by quasi-public entities. Okay, he was an apostle. Well, there was many other apostles. Leonard Wolf. Leonard Wolf, because this is a secret society now, right? Obviously, these people had a sense of humor. They called themselves the apostles. Previous members were angels. I mean, these people were like undoing. Their goal was to undo the Judeo-Christian bedrock of the society. Because if you are going to advocate for government being the center of people's lives, you have to displace what had previously been the center, which was with the relationship of man and woman to God. They had to push that God thing out of the way if they were going to have a new world order. These are the new world order people going back to the 1880s with Darwin and Spencer and Galton. This is the British intellectual tradition. This is what all of our children are taught. It's taught all the way down to kindergarten now because over generations and generations, they've just penetrated every mind, including mine. Including mine. All of us are steeped in this kind of thought. Leonard Wolfe. Author, publisher, and civil servant, he was married to author Virginia Woolf, another person you might want to look up. He was a member of the Labor Party and the Fabian Society. Oh, more research. Another secret society. So now we got two secret societies cross-pollinating. We got the Apostles and the Fabians. Who are the Fabians? Oh, Fabians. Oh, now we're getting down to it. These are the people that are making the, these are the people that took the time to practice every day to develop the skills to make their ideas reality. you got to take your hats off to them. And because I'm going to run out of time today, I want to say, I'm not talking about this to scare you. You think these people didn't have trouble putting their pants on like I do, like you do? Think they didn't stumble around sometimes, putting their underwear on, they kind of tripped up a little bit? You think they didn't have all kinds of foibles and problems? They did. What they did was the work. And if they were able to do this to our society where we stand on the verge of nuclear war with $32 trillion of debt, which is not an accident, they've been working on it for over 100 years, then I guess we're going to have to have countervailing secret societies because we have to train in how we're going to make our ideas into reality. And that doesn't mean being clumsy. That means being well-trained. That means doing the work every day. Go to precinctstrategy.com. Join your political unit, be it Democrat or Republican, and start to imbue it with integrity. Start to work and learn. That's all these people did, and look what hell they brought loose on us. 
So if we're going to survive this, we're going to have to get as serious as they are. Don't want to. Hey, I'd like to, you know, play baseball on the weekend and hang out with my kids and go to the mall and spend money. Wish I could. Sorry, I can't. It's all hands on deck. Get on deck. Fabian Society. It's a British socialist organization whose purpose is to advance the principles of social democracy and democratic socialism via gradualist and reformist efforts in all democracies rather than revolutionary overthrow. Because when things are revolutionary, they bring about a counter-reaction. But if they boil the frog slowly, hey, maybe he doesn't jump out. We're the frog. We're getting boiled. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Listen to this one. We champion and celebrate Fabianism, the belief that radical long-term goals are best advanced through empirical, practical, and gradual reform. Okay? And what do they want to create? Equality of power, wealth, and opportunity. Of course, except for them, they're the leaders. Everybody else, we're on the bottom of the pyramid where the shit flows down. A value of collection, collective action, and collect in the collective. They're into the collective. Sustainable development. Oh, hey, this thing's been around a long time. 1820, sustainability. Multilateral, international, and globalist cooperation. Are we getting an idea who these people are? Are we getting an idea that these secret societies have won the day? Some of these people that were involved with these folks, with Bertrand Russell, I mean, it's just, you know, amazing. G.E. Moore, English philosopher who, with Bertrand Russell, Ludwig Wittgenstein, was among the founders of analytic philosophy. I mean, come on. Fantastic, right? Rupert Brooke, he was a poet. They had artists in there because, of course, culture includes art. There's the Bloomsbury Group, another secret society. What is this group? It's a bunch of neighbors that got together on Saturday morning and had tea and talked about it. I got a Saturday group. Maybe I should turn it into a secret society. Many of you are watching me. Hey, you want to go secret? We'll probably have 500 people in a month. Because if it's a secret, everybody wants to get in on it. Everybody likes secrets. It, it really was not any secret. They just lived in the same neighborhood, Bloomsbury. So they called themselves a group, made themselves secret, and here they are. We're talking about it 100 years later. All right? That group had 10 members. Cleve Bell, an art critic. Vanessa Bell, a painter. Forrester, a fiction writer. Fry, art critic. Duncan Grant, a painter. John Maynard Keyes, an economist. He must have been a libertarian, right? Goes on and on. It's the mixture of art and politics, like Shostakovich. These people are onto something. I think we need to be onto something. Here's some notable apostles. The Cambridge Five, Guy Burgess, Anthony Blunt, and John Cairncross. Who are these people? <laughs> they were all arrested as Soviet spies. They were so into using by any means necessary, they actually spied for the Soviet Union. They went to jail for it. Are we getting the idea that these people and the apostles and the Bloomsbury Group and the Fabian Society, these people are Darwinists, using any means necessary to overthrow the traditional so that they can put in a Darwinist, secular humanist religion to dominate the world such that they can evolve Homo sapiens and satisfy their desire to alleviate human suffering. 
And as we said, in religious tradition, human suffering is alleviated through faith. And in this tradition, this Darwinist tradition, it's alleviated through what? Through eugenics. Positive eugenics, which is AI and robotics and biotechnology, and negative eugenics, genocide. So if you ask me for my opinion in closing, my opinion is I am not going to get caught up in, in uh, polarizing arguments that divide the people the way the Shias and, and the Sunnis were divided by the crown so they could get all the oil out of the Middle East on pennies on the dollar. I'm not going to play that game. You guys can all go piss off, okay? Go hate yourselves. I want a politics for all the people that want to live. All the people that are going to understand that we're living in a eugenics culture that has a positive nature, which is about human intellect evolving the species past Homo sapiens. And then its little quiet footnote is, hey, when we've evolved, we don't need you Homo sapiens. We're going to kill you. That's what we're really dealing with here. Let's cut through the fog. Don't take my word for it. These people are not hiding. All you have to do is take the time to read what they write. Remember what Bertrand Russell said? That there's going to be such a difference between ruler and ruled. That there's no possibility of overcoming this. That's their goal, to evolve the rulers through positive eugenics so that they're so powerful that we at the bottom of the pyramid are sheep. And what do you do with sheep? You shear them, and then you eat them. Okay? That's what we're dealing with. So I believe, I believe that we the people, we the free people of the United States of America can come up with a political platform which is so inclusive and is so focused on human well-being and the survival of Homo sapiens that 80% of the people are going to vote for this platform, not for candidates. Candidates are salesmen, but for the idea of humanity, for the idea of the survival of Homo sapiens, for the survival of a spiritual life, for my survival and for your survival. And on that note, I look forward to talking to you again. We're going to get into the one real secret society and how that thing is operating. And I want to thank you for your time, and I want to wish you a well and happy day. Thank you very much.